Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is the third part of a four-part course that we're looking at the the great Nevi'im, the great prophets of the prophetic tradition of, of Israel and looking at their historical circumstances and their major themes and to try and get an overview of the books that we have by these prophets under no circumstances and I wouldn't need to reiterate this to a learned audience such as this but under no circumstances should anyone ever consider that these talks are some kind of substitute for reading the text. They're only meant to provide a, a structural overview so that when you do go home and you open up, whether it's Sefer Yirmiyahu from Lazar Sefer Yechezkel, that you're able to get some kind of historical appreciation of the challenges and the context that the prophets were working within and why they said what they said and why they were who they were. They don't exist in a vacuum. Now, fortunately, we still have this except it's going to be upside down. We still have this from last week. It hasn't been rubbed. So I was just going to make a quick use of it. And if you recall, I'm just saying a, a mild point in background here so we understand. If you recall that the career of Yirmiyahu extended from round about here all the way through. And in fact, he lived during basically five kings. Even though two of these kings were only on the throne for three months, he lived through this whole period of around almost five decades leading up to the eventual Khurban, the eventual destruction of Yerushalayim and the Temple. What's important to realize about tonight's talk is that there is some level of overlap between the career of the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, and that of Jeremiah, and that happens here with this King Yehoiachin, and I'll remind us of everything. No one has to play a memory test from last week, but I'll reground us in that. But what I need us to understand is that it's really at this point that is the historical perspective that we need to understand with Yechezkel. And from here, the prophecy of Israel, the Nevoah, the spirit of Nevoah, bifurcates, meaning that it kind of has two arms one of which is continued as we saw last week during the whole reign of Tzidkiyahu through the prophecies of Yirmiyahu, both up to and beyond the Khurban, the destruction. But there is an equal parallel Nevoah project, prophetic project, going on in a very, very different place. Because Yechoniah was exiled together with the whole of the upper cream of the society, thousands of people, basically anyone who wasn't a Nebuch, and they were all schlepped off to Babel, all schlepped off to Babylonia, where amazingly the core of the people of Israel settled and survived, and that the prophetic project once again was renewed in that place. And that's the most startling and important perspective we need to start from. Now, I'm going to draw a timeline because I always draw a timeline. 
and the timeline here will do this so we'll remind ourselves and let's call once again I'll just use this very basic double centuries really we don't even need it we don't even really need two centuries but I'll do it anyway just to remind ourselves of in one minute jet ski over the history of what's happened so just to remind us is that if you recall Yeshayahu Isaiah is here yeah there just prior to that two decades prior to that in around minus 720 is the vanquishment and fall of the northern kingdom of Israel the ten tribes taken away the area Samaria the whole of the north of Israel ethnically cleansed and what we're dealing with now is simply the not simply but is what is remaining is the kingdom of Yehuda the kingdom of Judah Isaiah is in Judah in around 700 he and the king Hezekiah Hezekiah have a miraculous salvation from the Assyrian Empire we have a series of wicked kings Manasseh Ammon and then eventually you get a very righteous king which is Yoshiahu, King Josiah, who effects what we now know as the Josianic Revolution. They went through and they religiously and very zealously cleansed the whole land of all the corruptions and abominations that had been happening. And Yoshiahu was a very righteous king. But Yoshiahu was killed in 609, very important date. And already we looked at this in quite some detail last week with Yirmiyahu and he's killed by the Egyptians who are moving forward to try and prop up the falling Assyrian Empire and that Assyrian Empire staggered on somehow but pathetically until 605 when it was completely geschmeist by the Babylonians by Babel this new power they set up a new king in Israel Jehoiakim Jehoiakim goes for about 10 years and he's always jumping at the bait to try and think about whether or not how independent he could be eventually he rebels one time too many Nebuchadnezzar comes in 597 and not only is Jehoiakim die during that entire adventure but even the king that replaces him which is his son Jehoiachin Jehoiachin is only on the throne for three months and Nebuchadnezzar has him removed as well and taken in exile to Babylon. That is the famous Galut of 597 that is mentioned in the Megillah, it's mentioned in many places. And in some ways, in some ways, that event was kind of an even more devastating trauma for the psyche of the Jewish people than just about anything that had happened. This was a king of Yehuda. This was a Davidic king, full of great promise and expectation, that was carried off with everybody. Remember, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar did, Nabukadur Yosur, who we know as Nebuchadnezzar, did not destroy the temple. He didn't destroy Jerusalem. He plundered the temple, as you do. And he took away many vessels, but it was really about the upper, uh, the whole noble and administrative classes of the kingdom of Yehuda were taken away, including many famous individuals. One of those famous individuals was a young priest called Yehezkel ben Buzi. We know him in English as Ezekiel, 
the son of Buzi. Unlike Yirmiyahu from last week, not from last week, obviously, <laughs> 2,700 years, 2,600 years, but, but, but that we looked at last week, Yirmiyahu was also a Kohen, but we spoke about the fact that he was probably not a practicing Kohen in the sense that he wasn't necessarily involved in the things that the priests were doing in the temple. But Ezekiel, but Yechezkel, in all likelihood, was in fact very familiar with the services and the worships and the sacrifices and so on that were going on in the temple. He has in his book on several occasions points where he raises, where he talks about himself as a practicing priest and he shows quite some intimate detail with the whole concept of sacrifices and priestly cleanliness and so on. So he probably grew up much more in that environment but he along with a whole range of other people exiled and then of course Tzidkiyahu is on the throne for the next 10 years or so, 10-11 years, until he too <laughs> annoys Nebuchadnezzar who comes back in around 588 and by 586 it's over. And we'll look at that. How many of you have read the book of Yechezkel? I'm seeing one hand. The rabbi's on his phone so he's excused. Not, well, the whole, not, the whole book. not the whole book, but parts of it. I say this about all the books. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. You will read it and you will say, how come no one told me what was in this book? This is incredible. So we're going to go through the book systematically. It is probably one of the most nicely structured and systematic books in the whole of Tanakh. It's 48 chapters, but it's very clear the structure. Chapters 1 to 24, and remember, uh, we, didn't, we didn't make up the chapters. We didn't make up the chapters. The chapters are much, much later. You're aware of that, yeah? Even when you open the frumest Tanakh in the world today, you'll find chapters. But those chapters were actually invented by a Christian monk in the Middle Ages for the purposes of arguing about the Bible with Jews. So we had to learn those chapters so we could defend those arguments against Christians. And those chapters was, over time were seen to become very useful. And once you have the first printings of the Bible, they kind of became incorporated. And we now basically have adopted them as almost standard. Using those chapters, the book of Ezekiel is extremely symmetrical. Chapters 1 to 24, are up until the destruction of the temple. So the destruction of the temple is minus 586. And so chapters 1 to 24 deal with up to the destruction. Chapters 25 to 32 is dealing with prophecies to other nations. And chapters 33 to 48 are <laughs> what, what, what we could broadly term the consolation prophecies. That is, the temple's been destroyed, so now we have to have a vision of what goes next. All right? But I want to go through the book fairly systematically because it kind of it has such an incredible unity. And it's almost it's impossible to imagine that Yechezkel could have been written at any other period, simply from the language and from the concepts. He's definitely, whoever wrote this, is definitely living around this time prior to any of the other major historical events that are about to overtake the picture. 
But it's a very, very difficult time for these people. Even though the prophet Yirmiyahu is eventually going to say to the exiles in Babylon, settle down, have some roots, send your kids to school, get good jobs, buy nice houses, go and buy that BMW if you have to, because you're going to be there for a while. Remember, we spoke about this last week, there was a big political division that was happening back in Judah at the time between those who believed that Yehoniah, the exiled king, would come back and those like Jeremiah who said, uh-uh, he's not, that's not how it's going to happen. And so those camps also had their representatives within Babylonia itself. But on the whole, exile was a confusing place for the Jewish people who arrived there in this time in history. And, and, and just, to, just to give you kind of a semblance of the experience of what it would have been like to be part of a group of thousands of people carried off into a captivity. You know, we say the words, ah, carried off into captivity. Apart from the fact that we're talking about a forced march of around 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon, Anyone been to Berlin? You've been to the Pergamon Museum? You've seen the reconstruction of the Gate of Ishtar? Right? So you can imagine these exiles being taken into Babylon and walking through the Gate of Ishtar on their way into the city, which by the way was the most impregnable and impressive city of its age, and walking through and going, where are we? Where are, you just have to look at the gate of Ishtar to say, to be able to know that we're not in Kansas anymore. It's blue and it's covered in all sorts of kind of uh, symbols of Babylon. All right. But even when they arrive and even when they settle, and relatively speaking, those exiles were kind of treated okay. Yehoniah was kept in prison for many years, but he was given a ration even in prison and eventually was brought out of the prison to sit at the king's table. He was still provided for by the government. He wasn't abused or killed. And we don't just know that from Tanakh. We have that in the Babylonian chronicles themselves. Everything we're talking about, and I'll say it again, at this stage of history, in this stage of Tanakh, everything we're talking about is not comic books, this is real, this is history, this is validated history from various sources. But even so, these exiles have no idea what they're doing or what they're meant to be doing or what this exile means for their entire world. No one had invented shuls yet. No one had invented Jewish communal centers. Can God even hear us over here? What are we supposed to do? How, what, what, we don't have the temple, we don't have, like, what is our religious life and spiritual life meant to look like? And those questions and those challenges and those ideas in Bavel, and everybody is familiar with where Bavel is, right? Everybody knows where Bavel, I'll do it again, right? Just in case, all right. Yeah, well, there's the Mediterranean. You must know that by now. There's the water, right? Spain, 
North Africa, Egypt, here's Italy, here's Greece, here's Turkey, here's the land of Israel. And as you know from school, right, what they call the great fertile crescent, if you're going to live anywhere over here, what you want to be, especially in the ancient world, what you want to be doing is living Mesopotamia, between the rivers. And of course the true great rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And in this whole area here is really where everything's happening. Now the Euphrates has several tributaries. And you know Jews are there, I mean they're, they're, once they get there they're, they're, they're wandering around, they're looking at different areas. They're, they're, it's like, you know, we get this feeling that Yechezkel is kind of just there. He doesn't really know what's supposed to be happening. He's kind of talking with friends. He's known. He's a known individual by the community leaders and he's kind of respected at certain points, but he doesn't... Anyway, he's in chapter one. <laughs> he's standing and we know the date of this. Incredible things. Everything in Yechezkel is dated. So he tells you that this is in the fifth year of the exile. So you know you're talking around 593, 592. We know exactly when this was. He tells you where he's standing. He's standing on a tributary of the Euphrates called the river Kabar. And he's chatting with some mates. He's being Ezekiel, whatever it is that he does. And he sees. He looks. He goes, and I looked. And there's some kind of cloud <laughs> coming towards me. I saw vision of God. Now we can read that and we go, ah oh yes, he's a prophet, he sees a vision of God. This was phenomenal because he's in Babylon. This is the appearance of God in Babylon. Now it's at this point that I need, it's my responsibility, really, to kind of evince some sort of warning about this. During the times of the Mishnah, during the times of the Talmud, it's important for you to know this, during the times of the early Talmud, during the Mishnahic period, at the time, you know, like end of the first century, beginning of the second century, when the sages of the age were trying to work out what book is going to be in Tanakh and what's not, they were kind of closing the canon. I don't know if you've ever looked at a Christian Bible, but they've got stacks of texts that you've never heard of, and we've got some that they don't have. So that's the project, the rabbinic project of the Mishnah. One of their projects was to canonize, what is, of all these sacred writings that we have, what is truly inspired by the divine, what is considered mikra, what is considered kitvei kodesh, holy writings, and what is not. There were some very, very, there are two books that are in Tanakh, ended up in Tanakh, about which there were very, very many discussions and debates and arguments. And one of those texts, probably the most polemic of those texts, is the book of Yechezkel, the book of Ezekiel. The rabbis were very, very concerned about putting the book of Ezekiel in the Bible, primarily for three reasons. One is because of what I'm about to talk about. And that is that it's dangerous. There are descriptions, physical descriptions of the divine realm that the rabbis were very worried that people would see. Not merely so because they were so concerned 
about people getting some kind of physical apprehension of God, but because the texts themselves were dangerous if you understood them. The Mishnah tells us that these texts can only be taught in very, very small elite circles. The first chapter of the book of Ezekiel becomes the primary source text for all subsequent Jewish mysticism. The Talmud tells us about a young child, just, just to give you an example, there's, there's words in there that people were speculating on what do they mean in this description that Ezekiel gives us in his opening chapter. It's not like Isaiah, where in Isaiah we waited until the sixth chapter before Isaiah says, oh, you know, so I was in the temple and I saw God. That's the Ezekiel gives it to you straight away. And there are words there that we're not even sure what they mean. One of those words is unbelievably fascinating because Eliezer ben Yehuda, in the early part of the 20th century, was reviving the Hebrew language. He was looking for a word for electricity. And he was looking through the Bible and he came across this word chashmal that is in the description of the Merkava, of the divine chariot in Ezekiel, a book that had been kind of even translated in by some English translators as Electrum, and he said, Badang! In, in the context of Ezekiel, it's some kind of energy that surrounds the, the chariot, and we don't really know what it was. Eliezer ben Yehuda says, you know, I'll tell you what, that's chashmal, that's electricity, let's use that word. And um, that's amazingly consistent with a story that the Talmud tells us about a child that was studying the book of Ezekiel, in the first chapter, obviously unguided, and came across the word chashmal and had a sudden apprehension of what it was. And the word itself jumped out of the page and zapped him, says the Talmud. He literally was electrocuted by his comprehension of the word. And the rabbi said, oh, you see, you want to send that out? Second reason, so it was dangerous. The second reason is, is because, as we're going to see in Yechezkel, there are descriptions of the behavior and of the character of the people of Israel of the time that are very, very, very harsh. And they use even some parables and allegories that we'll look at that are extremely explicit. And they did not want the enemies of Israel to seize on those. Uh, and say, ah, look, you see, this is even what your own prophets are saying about you, which actually subsequently happened throughout history. And the third reason they were a bit uncomfortable with Ezekiel was because there are many passages in Ezekiel, particularly towards the end, where he's describing the future, where he brings regulations and ceremonies and laws that don't appear to be totally consistent with what we know from the Torah. And... We'll look at that perhaps a little bit more towards the end, but it was one of the famous Tanas, Hananya ben Cheskia, who went up in an attic and he sat there for months and months and he worked it all out. We don't have his project of how he worked it out, but whatever it was, Ezekiel became accepted into the canon and we have it today and we can talk about it. And the other book, the other book the rabbis were very anxious about was what? Perfect. Yeah. Shira Shirim. In fact, it wasn't, that debate was going on until Rabbi Akiva came along and said, the whole of the Bible is holy, but Shira Shirim is the holy of holies. Well, oh, Rabbi Akiva says that, well, 
in a ghost. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. All right. So he sees this vision, and this vision is moving. It's dynamic. We're not going into the huge description of it now. You can read it in full incomprehension like everyone else in history, but it's dynamic. Unlike Isaiah's vision was kind of static, but Yechezkel's vision of the divine chariot was was completely dynamic. There are wheels within wheels, there are angels, there are chayot, there are kruvim. There's a big throne, and above the big throne, there's kind of this anthropomorphic form. Four faces, a man, a lion, an ox, an eagle, and uh, Yechezkel, he's on his face. You know, like so we see already in chapter 2, he's appointed as the prophet. And God says, I'm going to give you some messages and you're going to tell people. And it's not going to be easy, even though you're in exile, but here's the situation. You're now a prophet. It's not like the other prophets who were kind of giving, you know, who are we going to send? Isaiah, pick me. Jeremiah, you're a prophet. Oh, I'm a prophet. Ezekiel's just flat on his face, almost unconscious with what he's seen. And God says, okay, here we go. You're a prophet. But you are a very particular type of prophet. You are not just a Navi, says God. You are a Tsofe. What is the meaning of the word Tsofe? So I'm hearing different things. A watcher, yeah. A lookout. A scout or a lookout. Now what's the deal with a Tsofe? A Tsofe stands on the walls of a city. And his job is to warn the people of an impending danger. If the Tsofer does his job and he warns the population, then it's everyone for themselves. But he has fulfilled his obligation. However, if the Tsofer does not do what he's told to do, does not warn the people of the danger, then everybody in the city that is injured or killed is on his head follow you are that prophet the destruction is coming says God Jerusalem will be destroyed just as I told the prophet Yeremiah I'm telling you it's going to happen it has to happen says God because the people of Israel in the land of Israel have become so decrepit and they are building a society that is so decayed and degraded that there is no choice. Not only will they be defeated, but Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be everything. But you need to tell the people here, and you need to warn them, that they need to understand what that means. It means it is an opportunity for them to change. Now, what we see about the Nevi'im and what we see about the prophets is the fact that they're not just people who shout out messages. They're not just these crazy guys who dribble in their beards, carrying big placards, you know, wandering around Flinders Street Station going, the end of the world is nigh. I mean, they are that. 
And there is a kind of impression that we get from some of the Nevi'im that they were kind of that. But they're not just giving vocal, poetic messages. And remember, the, there were many prophets of Israel. The ones that we have are the most holy and the most sublime. But they also were people. And many of their messages, they were demanded by God to be acted out. We're going to see the most extreme example of that next week. But just as Yirmiyahu had performance pieces he had to do, walk around with a yoke and so on, if you recall, Yechezkel gets given some serious performance pieces he has to do. And this really takes us up kind of chapters 3 or 4 right through to chapter 7. He's kind of got to do these performance pieces in, in Babylon, in public squares, in front of people. They thought he was nuts. In fact, one of the reasons he was called Yechezkel ben Buzi, we understand his father was Buzi, but the rabbis tell us that Buzi also can mean scorn. He was scorned because people were mocking him. They're going, you're an idiot. He had to lie on, he had to build this kind of model out of kind of bricks and pans of Jerusalem, right? And build a model of Jerusalem and show, oh, this is the siege and this is where it's happening. This is Nebuchadnezzar's siege and this is how it is. And he had to lie down next to that model in the street. And he had to lie on one side for 390 days. That represented the years of the kingdom of Israel that they were defying God. And then on his other side for 40 years to represent Judah and the last 40 years of Judah, probably since Josiah. Not 40 years, 40 days. He had to lie for 40 days. In another performance piece, God says to him, I want you to cook food on an open grill under which for fuel you're going to use human excrement. Effectively a poo barbecue. <laughs> Ezekiel says, God, I'm kind of with you, but I'll do anything. But, you know, I'm a priest. <laughs> And I've grown up a certain way and I've got used to certain things. I've never really done anything as disgusting as that. And I I look, I'll do whatever, but I can't, I can't do that. And God basically says to him, okay, I understand. You can make it with, with animal dung. So he does. He has to do this thing. We're showing that the abominations that are lying underneath the society of Judah. We're not going back, Ezekiel is effectively saying. We're here because we are the remnant. We're the ones that are going to have to move the whole project of Jewish history forward. It's us. Because God is telling me that whatever's going on back here is finished. It's over. Makes you realize just how pathetic it must have been for the prophet Yeremiahu, who was still back there. He was kind of like the only person with spiritual insight left in the whole country. And then, and then we get to chapter 8. And if you've never read chapters 8 to 11 of the book of Ezekiel, then you should go home now. Don't even wait to the end of the talk. Just go home now. <laughs> you should definitely look at this because it's mind-blowing. Ezekiel is in Babylon. The year, it's about a year after the previous vision. 
And suddenly, and obviously since then, there are many, many different discussions about whether this was a psychological experience or whether this was physical. But he suddenly astral traveled. He is lifted up basically by his pious and taken through the air at an extraordinary speed, teleported effectively, and finds himself. I mean, there is no text of the Bible that is more beloved by science fiction writers than the book of Ezekiel. Remember that some of you would be young enough to remember back in, I think it was in the 70s, a guy called Eric von Daniken. You remember him? He wrote an entire book called Chariot of the Gods. This theory that in fact all these religious texts were talking about aliens and his most ecstatic chapter is that on Ezekiel because the Ezekiel chariot is really this massive UFO that he's describing. And similarly here, the idea of being suddenly teleported to another place is a very, very interesting idea. But that's what happens to Ezekiel. And he finds himself, suddenly he says, I'm there, I'm in Yerushalayim, I'm in Jerusalem. And I'm next to the temple. And I'm seeing the same chariot that I saw back in Babylon, but now it's kind of hovering around the temple. And it's telling me to walk along and go into the temple and just walk around it. And God says to him, you see that crack in the wall, Ezekiel? Yeah, I see a crack in the wall. He goes, have a look at that crack. And he looks into the crack and inside one of the deep, dark vault of the temple, he sees the Sanhedrin. He sees the 70 elders of Israel. And on the walls are etchings of abominations and idols and disgusting things. And they are offering up sacrifices and votive offerings to these abominations because they think that no one can see them. And Ezekiel is deeply shocked. And God says, oh, you're going to see worse than this. Actually, we've already seen something horrendous in, by the north side of the temple, something which we don't even know really what it is. It's called the Makni. It must have been erected during the time of Jehoiakim because we know that Josiah would have actually got rid of it all. But then God says to him, you're going to see worse than that. And he takes him around and he sees a group of women right next to the temple weeping for Tammuz. Now, Tammuz... I mean, this is not a class on Avodah Zarah. I kind of wish it was because it's very interesting. But Tammuz, of course, was the great vegetation god of the ancient world. It's, you find its form morphed in various, you know, it's the same as Adonis in Greece, the same as Isis in Egypt. Tammuz of the great big kind of Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian synthesis. This is a god that went into the underworld and died, represents the vegetation. That they, Remember that for those of us who grew up in kind of European-based countries, we think of winter as the time when everything dies. Whereas in this part of the world, winter you actually get a bit of rain, you get a bit of this, but summer, those months, especially after the summer solstice, the days are getting shorter, but these hot winds, they come and they kind of destroy all agriculture. That is why Tammuz, the month is in the height of summer. And the very, very famous ritual, particularly performed by women, of weeping for Tammuz. He's shocked. And God says, oh, you're going to see worse than this. And he takes him round the other side of the temple. 
and he sees 25 men with their backs to the temple bowing down to the rising sun worshipping the god Shamash and then in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 is when you see the most astonishing thing that the divine presence, the Shekhinah which starts in the Holy of Holies then moves out to the wider part of the temple then moves to the court, then moves to the outer court God is leaving the building Ezekiel describes as he sees it in stages and eventually moves out of the temple precinct and up to the Mount of Olives and as it moves out of the temple an angel reaches down underneath God tells an angel to reach down underneath the chariot to the fiery coals and he takes a handful of the coals and and the whole of Yerushalayim goes up and God ascends and it is one of the most stunning descriptions of the departure of the divine presence that you could possibly read and Ezekiel of course is suddenly wakes up I'm in Babylon read those chapters they will amaze you and then God tells him you know I want you to take clay gola we don't entirely sure what clay gola are but we assume that they are literally vessels of of exile so he's going to walk around for a while with a knapsack and kind of like a you know a rucksack and kind of with a bit of a pan maybe and the sort of things you might take if you're going off into the bush he's got to wander around there to show what is actually about to happen to the whole of the nation of Israel and then I need to spend a minute on the famous chapter 16 all of this by the way all of this is happening during this parallel period from 597 to 588 and I say 588 because that's where the shift happens during the reign of Tzidkiyahu which we looked at last week and Ezekiel is with the other community leaders in Bavel chapter 16 is an important chapter don't read it if you're squeamish or prudish some of the verses in chapter 16 you will be familiar with because you find them in the Haggadah it's about a little baby that is born and God finds this baby abandoned on a hillside still messy from birth covered in afterbirth and God takes it and wipes it and washes it and cares for it this little baby girl and this girl grows up and God enters into a solemn covenant with this young woman unfortunately this young woman then goes on to become the most promiscuous nymphomaniac of her generation and basically sleeps with everyone becomes an unbridled slut and if you're shocked at those words read the book of Yechezkel he said you opened your legs to every passerby nothing I could say about it would actually be as shocking as the prophet Yechezkel one of the reasons why the rabbis actually didn't like Yechezkel is because he's like boom he tells you in very very clear explicit language and of course the whole thing is a metaphor for Israel 
you just couldn't be faithful to the very, very simple things I was asking you, says God. And I've said it at each talk we've had in this room, and I'll say it again. The Jewish people exist for a purpose. They have a continuum. They have a covenant with God, with the creator of the universe, that they are to set up a moral and ethical and righteous and just society. And that there is a very, very strong link, a very strong link, between social justice and idol worship, an inverse link. Because idol worship is about the pursuit of power. And it wasn't enough for you. Every single ideology you saw, you had to run off and imitate. You saw Ashur. You saw Baal. You saw the gods of Egypt. You saw the gods of the neighboring nations. You saw the gods of the Phoenicians. You saw the gods of the Babylonians. You had to run after them. And all I asked you says God, is just to observe my chukot and my mishpatim and my mitzvot and just be nice and create a society which is just. It's also interesting because in chapter 17, Yechezkel then gives us two very big mashalim and it's important. I can't, I can't spend time on every single chapter, but chapter 17 is important. It's kind of a very, very interesting geopolitical insight that Yechezkel gives us because it's a parable about two eagles. And these, of course, two eagles, we don't have to interpret it because Ezekiel tells us what it is. One eagle is Babylon, the other eagle is Egypt. And God says through the prophet Ezekiel, you know, because even by now, even by now, forget the next 2,600 years of history up until where we are, even by now, people are starting to notice that kind of empires swell up and then they go down and then some other empire comes up. Who do you think is doing this, says God? This fabulous mashal of trees, that the nations are trees in a forest. All the trees of the field shall know says God. Ki ani Hashem, I am God. Hishpalti etz gavoa, I lowered the high tree. Higbati etz shafal, I raised up the low tree. Hovashti etz lach, I dried up the moist tree. Hifrachti etz yavesh, I caused the dry tree to flower. Ani Hashem, dibarti vaasiti, I am God. These nations are nothing. They simply exist as a reflection of you. When you run off and seek to be like Babylon or be like Assyria or be like Egypt or be like Phoenicia, instead of being your authentic self as the Jewish people in the land, every time you do that, these nations are going to go great. In our generation, Who's responsible for the fact that America is great, that America's in decline, then China's great, then China will go in decline, then who knows what, maybe God forbid Australia will go, who knows? It's God. And God's been doing it since here, at the latest. And there's a reason, and the book Sefer Yechezkel goes into this reason why this happens. 
19 to 22, chapters 19 to 22, a very uh, interesting historical overview of the people of Israel and what they've endured. Chapter 23 is another one of those difficult, explicit ones. It's about two sisters, Ahola and Aholiva. Ahola representing the kingdom of Israel in the north. Aholiva, the kingdom of Judah, who in a sense is worse because she saw what happened to her sister. Ahola and Aholiva, once again, two extremely promiscuous, profligate women. This is a metaphor that he keeps coming back to again and again and again in order that we should understand that our covenant with God is a relationship. And basically, we are very much found wanting in that relationship, which is why you are in Babylon. And then in chapter 24, chapter 24 is a very, very difficult chapter to read. As I said, the prophets act out their message with their life. And we know the date of chapter 24, because the date is the 10th of Tevet, minus 588, which is Asaraba Tevet. It wasn't just Asaraba Tevet, it was the Asaraba Tevet. It was the 10th of Tevet, the first one. And what happened on the 10th of Tevet is that Nebuchadnezzar had arrived at Jerusalem and began his great siege. The siege that led to the untold suffering and devastation and destruction that would be accompany the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. On that night, and remember Ezekiel is 500, years, 500 miles away, on that night God comes to him and says to him, it's over. The siege of Yerushalayim by Nebuchadnezzar has begun and I need you to do something that is going to give the people in Babylon a trigger of consciousness, a wake-up to the realization of the reality of this. So here's how it's going to work, says God. When you wake up in the morning, your wife will be dead. Your wife, who's next to you, she's going to die tonight. And you are not going to mourn. You're going to walk around, you're going to dress nicely, you're going to put on tefillin, you're going to do all the things that a mourner does not do. And when people say to you, how can you be so numb to your own wife's death? He's going to say, this is nothing to how numb you will be when you hear what has happened now. And when you hear of the destruction of Yerushalayim. And then, of course, that destruction took some time. But 25 to 30, as I said, 25 to 32, these chapters here, while during the, which are dated also during the duration of this couple of years while Yerushalayim is being destroyed, they are prophecies and oracles and messages to other nations. Go through them. It's quite interesting. One interesting aspect of that that I think people kind of, it's good to be aware of, is that chapter 27 which is a prophecy concerning Tsur, concerning Tyre, which is in Lebanon, in the north, which was deep in Phoenicia. Phoenicians, as you know, were famous sailors. Chapter 27 of the book of Ezekiel is one of two, together with Homer's Odysseus, 
one of two sources, uh, two of our greatest sources of historians and ancient world scholars of ancient world shipping. He describes in detail there what the ships looked like, how they're constructed, what materials were carried in them, where they went. It's a very, very fascinating description of ancient shipping that even without the Bible, historians get very excited about. But chapter 33 is where he picks up and... <laughs> you see, I've just stopped myself. I've just stopped myself, fortunately. I got carried away talking about nations and I went from 17 and then I went into the historical overview which is really 19 to 22. It's a very symmetrical book and I didn't talk about a very, very important chapter. And I know that you just let me go and you say, well, he didn't talk about that chapter, you know. Uh, he's, he's having an off night, but um, I have to talk about this before I can get to really what's going on in 33 and that is chapter 18. Because chapter 18, believe it or not, because I just left it out, chapter 18 is actually one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And I want to just come back to it for a moment and then we can look properly at chapter 33 because it's a continuation of that. All of the prophets of Israel talk about Teshuvah. Talk about the concept, and I've mentioned this again and again, talk about this radical idea that the prophets of Israel introduce, the idea of return. It can be translated repentance, it can be translated as answer, but really some form of return to authentic existence that depends on an inner transformation. I've said this many, many times, and the Nevi'im, obviously even more times. An inner transformation. It's not enough to say I'm going to be religious. There has to be some shift within you about the sort of person you are. That happens, and we spoke about this at length last week with Yirmiyahu, that happens individually, it happens collectively, it happens nationally, it can happen globally. And when you effect that shift, the world changes. But Yechezkel in chapter 18 has introduced a very, very emphatic point about all this. And one that he feels needs to be emphasized. Teshuvah is an individual exercise. Meaning, your sins belong to you. They belong to no one else. You are not punished for what your ancestors did. Nor will your children be punished for your sins. You sin, you're the one who has to make amend for it. It is not the case. It is not the case. And, and in fact, there's, there's a lot of polemic on this because it seems to be in some places kind of a little bit at variance with some of the other theological messages we've had from the Torah and so on. But Ezekiel is absolutely... God says, whatever you thought was the case, this is how it is. So in chapter 33, a massive point on the individualism of, of sin, but obviously in contrast to another religion that came on later. But chapter 33, Ezekiel wants to come back to this point and he wants to emphasize, not only is it you being responsible for your own actions and not anyone else's, but Teshuvah is about now. 
It's about now. It doesn't matter if you were a complete asshole for all of your life until the last five minutes. If you do genuine teshuvah in the last five minutes, then everything you did before then is wiped out, forgotten, didn't exist. And similarly, and it's not just about what your ancestors may have done, it's about what you yourself did doesn't count now. If you really affect that proper transformation by the same token, if you were a completely righteous person until five minutes ago, and now you decide you're going to become a big sinner and you act on that, your entire life of righteousness was meaningless. Everything is about now. So that transformation obviously is an inner transformation that affects a permanent state of consciousness inside a person. And then also in chapter 33, this guy runs into Babylon and he's been running for months and uh, he's exhausted and he kind of falls down and he can only utter two words. He has run all the way from Jerusalem. And this obviously is in 586 and he runs in and he says The city has been smitten. The city has been struck. Done. Boom. He is the one, the palit. He is this, this refugee basically. He ran all the way from Jerusalem and he brings the news that Jerusalem was destroyed. Now they know, says God, that a prophet was in their midst. Now they will take you seriously, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel gets up. He's been kind of hampered by God. He can't really talk properly for the last while since his wife died, because that was part of the whole thing. But now God loosens him up. The temple's just been destroyed. We've just had the news arrive of the temple destroyed. Ezekiel gets up and what's the first thing he's going to say? He's got some messages. And the first message he has, which is chapter 34, the news of the destruction of Yerushalayim arrives in chapter 33 and in chapter 34 Ezekiel gets up and he launches at one particular segment of the Jewish population, its leaders, whom he calls the shepherds, and he strip blasts them. He said, you were placed over the flock of God, but instead of guiding and preserving them, you raped them, you slaughtered them, you drank their blood. You did nothing. You thought your entire conception of leadership was exploitation. And that's what it was. But that is not the foundation of what leadership is meant to be in the Jewish world. You are to guide this nation to a better place. There's no question he launches, blamed leadership is the harshest critique 
of the concept of leadership. It's very, very popular today, you know, in schools to teach leadership, you know, the leadership seminars, and they do this and that. And you wonder if they're actually going to read texts like Ezekiel 34, that people can understand that the Jewish people are not a culture club. We're not another nation. If we're just another nation, that's the problem. But we're not just another nation. Chapter 35, he talks to Seir about Seir and what that means. But it's chapter 36, which is chapter 36. And in fact, in some ways, if you're only ever going to read one chapter of the book of Ezekiel, it's going to be chapter 36. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to wake you up now with chapter 36 because it's not an easy point to listen to. Because so far we've been sitting here going, oh yes, Babylon, 2600 years ago. And yes, oh, the leadership of the Jewish people, how terrible. And blah, blah, blah. Well, now Ezekiel is going to talk to you and me. He's going to talk to us. You're in this thing called the Gola, says Ezekiel. This thing called the diaspora. We've never had a diaspora before. How exciting. We've got a diaspora now. We're in Babylon. In the Gola. What is a Gola? What is a diaspora? Let's talk about it, says Ezekiel. Let's sit down. Let's have a workshop. And let's talk about what this means. I'll tell you what it means, says God. The whole concept of a diaspora is a complete chilul Hashem. It's a complete desecration and profanation of the divine name. The very fact that you live in Babylon, in New York, in Toronto, in London, in Johannesburg, in Melbourne, is a desecration of the divine name. This is not what my people are meant to be doing. It is true you are in exile for a reason and a purpose. But ultimately, it is so far from the ideal vision of what humanity and what the Jewish people should be, that it's nothing short of a desecration of the divine in the world. And even, and so much so, he says, that even if you don't deserve to be redeemed, I have to do it, says Hashem, Lema'an Shem Kodshi, for the sake of my name. Because you are my people. And while you are in exile still, I require you to sanctify my name. That famous, famous verse 23 from chapter 36, which ends with the words, which in effect could be a summary of the whole of the book of Yechezkel, that I will become sanctified in you to their eyes, the first letters of each word spell Bavel, Babylon. That's what you're doing in exile while you are being refined for a new purpose, the purpose of restoration. You will be restored. You will go back to the land. You will be the new Israel, but you are being refined. And when you come back, I will pour on you pure waters. 
and you will become purified. Massive. Massive. And not just for them, but for us. It is a huge shift of consciousness. And then once we have that, then, then, chapter 37. Chapter 37 is a chapter you all know. And many have said that our generation is the only generation that really can understand chapter 37. In chapter 37, Ezekiel is standing in a valley and it is full of bones. And the Spirit of God comes upon these bones and they come together and they match up and then they're covered with sinews and flesh and skin and they stand up and they sing. And many have said that only our, I mean, only our generation, which has actually visions, has actually seen valleys full of bodies and people climb out of graves and go to the land of Israel and rebuild it. That chapter actually, well, those few chapters actually contain one of the few uh, instances where the word Shoah is mentioned in, in Tanakh. Phenomenal vision. You know, we get complacent sometimes by going, oh yes, the Valley of the Dry Bones, this famous image by the prophet Ezekiel. And we forget that the promise of the restoration of Israel is an ongoing promise on behalf of God to the people of Israel for the sake of the divine name, for the sake of humanity. Here, that took 70 years, Jeremiah's famous prophecy. Later, it took nearly 2,000 years. But it does happen. And is in acknowledgement of that, Yechezkel talks in chapter 38. Ready? Got your seatbelts on? In chapter 38, Yechezkel says, I, I'm going to tell you something. And I've seen it. Not now. Not now but in a long time to come. Kind of at the end of years, whatever that means. The latter part of years. As part of this constant project of restoration, there's going to come a point in history, says Ezekiel, but it's not this generation. It's kind of way in the future. The people of Israel are going to be gathered from all the nations and they're going to create a state in the land of Israel. And they're going to come. And it's going to be lovely. And they're going to spill out of their towns and their villages. And there's going to be a lot of people. And then there's going to be a collection of nations. And he lists various nations. Persians, Persia is among them. And we're not sure what the other ones are. And they're going to come up against the land of Israel. Where the remnant is living have just been settled. And they're going to come upon the land of Israel like a cloud. For no other reason than to plunder and to pillage and to kill. This is the famous vision of Gog Umagog. 
And every generation has said, oh, Gog and Magog, maybe that's us. But how many generations can really say, whoa, 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 we may be a candidate for that. And it is on that day, says God, that the whole world will know about my purpose for the Jewish people. Because I will step in, says God, and I will slaughterate them. Slaughterate. It's not a word, I made it up. <laughs> they, will, they will die in their millions. There will be so many dead in that mess. It will take seven years to clean it up. They'll have entire teams of people going around just looking for the bones of people that died in that conflagration. So we have that promise. We have that promise. If you believe that Yechezkel has been right till now, and he has, then that's what he tells us. But it's not an easy read. It's not an easy read and it's pretty damn scary. It's a ginormous Armageddon happens there. But then, chapters 40 to 48, obviously which take place after the whole apocalypse of Gog and Magog. Because ultimately, what, 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 what's one of the great themes that we learn from the Nevi'im that probably is emphasized in Yechezkel and clarified in Yechezkel perhaps more than any other prophet is this. That we know that there are forces in the universe. Gravity is one of them. There's the strong and there's the weak nuclear force, there's the electromagnetic force. There's the force of, you know, whatever, different, and they're just, they're just kind of like physics, but I mean, if we move beyond there, there's different forces. Nature is a force. There is no force in the universe, says Yechezkel, he doesn't say it in these words, but this is the theme that's coming out again and again. There is no force in the universe that can stand in the way of Jewish history. Not even nature can stand in the way of Jewish history and God's determination to bring this one people through in order to inspire humanity to become something greater than it is. To contain the divine. So therefore, once we have this great big apocalypse, <laughs> then we build the new Yerushalayim. <coughs> and we build the new Beit HaMikdash, the new temple. You see, a lot of people would, could ask the question, when we did come back from Babylon here, and we rebuilt the temple, why did we not build the temple that was described by Ezekiel in those last chapters, 40 to 48? It's because, really, they adhere to the whole, in a sense, continuation of the Gog and Magog prophecy, that that is something for the end of time. Ezekiel's vision is a vision of what the temple will look like when it is a temple for all of humanity. That the world's spiritual center is in Jerusalem, not just in name, but in reality. And there are many interesting aspects about that temple that you'll read about if you read those chapters carefully. Who's got a Tanakh? No, I'm in mean a real Tanakh, not an iPhone. 
<laughs> okay, no, I thought you didn't. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, the whole, the whole purpose of that Bet HaMikdash is to be a place where the divine can be contained within humanity. But the Jewish people are really the nation that is the, are the caretakers of this incredible building and this incredible precinct. Now, one of the things that Yechezkel tells us is that in this Jerusalem, that we're in the new better, in the, what we, what, what's often referred to by a lot of people as the third temple, is that coming out of either side of the temple will be two streams of water that actually become rivers. Those of you who are familiar with Shimon Peres's plan, remember that one from the Med to the Dead to the Red? Yeah? This huge amazing project that probably will totally stuff up the environment but it's trying to bring a canal all the way from the Mediterranean right through to the Dead Sea which would go through Jerusalem and uh, and then you would create a whole lot of hydropower by dropping it down to the Red to the Dead Sea and then there would be a canal that would continue on from coming from the Red Sea whatever you know you get the picture so it's kind of like that it's big canals that go all the way but they they're not actually, in Yechezkel's picture, they're not actually bringing water into here. This is the source of those waters. So either you can say, well, he's talking physically or he's talking allegorically that the waters represent peace and spiritual flow that comes into the world out of Yerushalayim. He also has a very, 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 very interesting picture of the new allotment of the Shvatim of the tribes. If you recall from, you know, reading... The Tanakh to this point, when the tribe settled in the land, it was kind of random, not random, but their allotments were a bit all over the place. And Yechezkel says that's not going to be how it is in the new system. In the new system, there's the land of Israel, here's Jerusalem, six tribes will be to the north of Jerusalem and it'll all be horizontal lines. Every single tribe will get a bit of coast, a bit of the center country, and a bit of probably the Jordan Valley or whatever is on the east, and six below. Now, we can speculate, we can figure on what he tries to imply by that, what he means. Already in chapter 37, in the vision of the dry bones, he has talked about the reunification of the house of Yehudai and the house of Yosef. Basically, that the unity of the Jewish people is crucial to them fulfilling their mission. And while they are in exile, while they are in exile, they are refining themselves for that mission. But once they come back, then there will be a much more equal distribution. But I'll finish it because Sefer Yechezkel finishes. At the end of chapter 48, it's kind of this beautiful ending that ties right back into the early parts of the book. Because he tells you that Yerushalayim of the future will have a different name. The name of Yerushalayim will be Hashem Shama. God is there. Which obviously picks up from his description much earlier in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 about how God leaves Yerushalayim. Because Yerushalayim is in a society that cannot contain the divine because it is so corrupt and degraded. And by the end of the book, in this unbelievably stunning vision of the new Yerushalayim, actually they've been 
quite a few, uh, you should Google actually some of the images that people have done in the last few hundred years trying to encapsulate what they think Ezekiel is talking about, this picture of what Yerushalayim is. Some of them are really, really nice. But that Yerushalayim, the new Yerushalayim is a place where God is there, present. The Shekhinah is revealed, the divine presence is revealed on a constant ongoing basis. Now, I want to just say one point. I want to say one point because I've had a few people sphincter clenching at me and I just need to fix this up. When I've been talking about the emphasis of the Nevi'im, of the prophets, on the concepts of social justice, and I've used expressions at different times, things like saying things like, the prophets and God don't want you to be religious they want you to be just and righteous and ethical and moral. Some people get a little bit nervous because they think, ah, oh, well, so uh, exactly why should I keep any of the mitzvot if I consider myself to be a nice person? Uh, similar to some of the discussions that were happening in the Middle Ages when uh, around the Rambam and people were saying, well, I'm philosophically enlightened, I don't need to keep Shabbat. The point is that the ordinances and mitzvot of the Jewish people are pathways and exemplars of this very picture of social justice. When you come back to the land, says Ezekiel, it, and Yirmiyahu said the same thing, it's not like you're coming back as a religious exercise. Because there is no real separation between the spirituality of the Jewish people and its national identity. But in a world and in a society that is truly reflective of the divine, these mitzvot will fit like a glove. They will not be some sort of religious effort. They will be the way that you want to express your authentic self totally in tune with God. We live now in a very, very imperfect world. The imperfection of this world is exemplified by the fact that the Jewish people are in exile. And to make no mistake, I mean, we're kind of, we spoke last week about where we are in history, we're an extremely interesting phase of history, but it can go either way. We're kind of not in exile because we have autonomous sovereignty over the land of Israel, which is ginormously, ginormously remarkable. We're kind of in this exquisite bubble in Jewish history but we don't know which way it's going to go and in many ways the book of Yechezkel is kind of problematic on that question because he's not a Zionist he's not telling his generation to run back to Israel and rebuild it because they're not ready for that it's going to take a few more decades for them to reach the kind of consciousness that will produce a Zerubavel and a Chagai and a Zachariah. Next week I'm going to be talking in one talk about the Treyasar. I'm going to be covering 12 prophets. So we won't be able to spend more than five minutes or so on each, but we will definitely historically discuss and show how they are no less a part of the phenomenal continuum of the Nevoic tradition that is moving along here. But to really understand Yechezkel, Yechezkel is the one prophet 
because he is in exile, he is talking to those people who live in an exilic situation, in a diaspora, who are removed, as we all are, from our spiritual center. In a way, even Jews living in Israel today, even Jews living in Yerushalayim, even Jews living in the old city are removed from their spiritual center because things are not how they're meant to be. I'm not sure who's been to Yerushalayim recently, but you may have noticed that the temple is not there. <laughs> and so we live in this kind of decentered reality where we want to be authentic and deeply connected as Jewish people, but our entire nation is not where it's meant to be in relation to humanity. And humanity is suffering, but it all changes in an instant through the concept of the nowness of Teshuvah. And so if we've grasped that, then we've grasped the essence together with all the big visions and all the amazing things that happen in the book of Yechezkel. I urge you to go uh, home and read it. And uh, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.